I'm always excited for the privilege and the honor, responsibility, and believe it or not, in a good way, the burden of teaching God's Word. To me, this is great. I love it. Why? Because God is so good to manifest himself, not only to, but in each one of us and through each one of us. And the manifestation of who God is and how God is is given to us as we study his word. And as we study his word, the Holy Spirit causes the truth. Remember, last week, Nick talked about the truth. The truth of God's word to become not just a cognitive or intellectual truth, but a living truth, a living reality. How many of you know God today better than you ever have because of the word of God? Amen. It's great. Isn't it great? So thank you so much. Father, thank you for bringing this together. Thank you for teaching. Father, when we think of the humility expressed by the Holy Spirit as exemplified in the life of Jesus to patiently, consistently, kindly, faithfully teach us to wrestle with us and sometimes even against us. Always in love. Always for the purpose of manifesting, Father, your life in us. Father, as we are experiencing this fruit of the Spirit, the very character of the Holy Spirit, Father, we're praying that that character is not only what we experience, but you are actually producing your character in us. What a God you are. That's all we can say. What a God you are. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're continuing with our I am predicated statements, those that I am, and then it's followed by an explanation of some sort. And this is the seventh one. This is the final one. And in this one, we're going to find out beginning today. I, 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 how, how is it possible to say any particular thing that Jesus says is more important than the other? I don't think we need to be, I, need, I think we need to be careful. But there's something about this 
particular I am statement that unlike the other six, this one encapsulates, draws together, brings into focus all that Jesus, I believe, has been saying in these I am statements. And so as we look at this seventh one, it's not, okay, we finished them. It seems to me, and maybe this is God's purpose, but it just seems to me that this is the crescendo. Do you know what I mean by a crescendo? Boom! When the orchestra gets to that greatest point and it just, boom! I believe this I am is the crescendo. All the others have been building up to and leading to this great crescendo of the purpose and the means of God of accomplishing his purpose for his people. And so hopefully, and it's always a very great concern of mine, that not that the Holy Spirit cannot and will not communicate to us, but that he will do so in a way through this man and through others what he wants to say, that we'll understand this, that we'll leave here with such a greater and more profound understanding and appreciation and embracement of this God of ours. Amen? One of the things, I think you'll remember me saying this, and I don't know whether it's going to be in a couple of weeks or whatever, but you'll get the email. We'll make an announcement. Want to have another breakfast together, okay? And I know that, you know, sometimes there's a breakfast. Certain people, Everybody come. Y'all come to this. I consider this as not quite the same level as, as teaching the Word, but it is manifesting the Word of God and the reality of the Word as we relate to one another, correct? And so come. But I want some of you, and, and I'm going to begin to ask you if you want to, let me know. I want you to share with us just two or three minutes, four minutes, a quick testimony how God has touched you during this particular series. Not in everything in the world and not in whatever we learned 20 years ago, but in this series. I'd like to know, what has the Holy Spirit done in you during this series? Is that okay? So be thinking about that. And it's only going to be a short testimony. Them's who run overtime, you know me. I'm going to be sweet, yell at you, sit down, let's hear somebody. <laughs> no, I would never do that, not me. My wife would do that to you, but not I. No, no. So let's go ahead this morning. This morning we're looking at John 15, the first several verses. Let's remember the context. In John 13 through 16, Jesus and his fellow disciples have been celebrating the Passover. You remember last week when Nick talked to us about I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's in what chapter was it? 14. Well, you didn't see the one go up <laughs> in 14. Remember, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When we come to chapter 15, 
Jesus has been encouraging his disciples and preparing them for the, this most unsettling event. Think if you're there. You, you, you and I, we are there with Jesus at this meal. And we've been with him all these years, and we have been experiencing his presence, his activity, his care, his love, his adjustment. There's no man like this man. We've never met anyone. We've never been any with anyone who was like this man. Amen? This is absolutely the most unique person in all the world. There's something about him that has elicited our love for him. And so we're sitting around the table. And as we read in John 14, 28, he says this. You heard me say, I go away and I will come to you. You're going away. What, 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 wait, wait a minute. What do you mean you're going away? Now, these chapters or God's instruction for the church in preparation for this great event of Jesus leaving. And he's encouraging them. But Pam, how does Jesus encourage them when he says, I'm leaving you? How is that an encouragement? Oh, but I'm coming back. So when he says that, what's the obvious question? He's leaving, Jody, but he's coming back. What's the obvious question? If you're leaving, how, when, what, what does that mean you're coming back? Why are you leaving? Where are you going? Remember, they haven't quite understood the issue of him dying yet. But it's beginning to dawn on them. You're leaving. Well, how are you coming back? So, to say they were bewildered, worried, upset, I think is an understatement. I think we would have all been there. So, here's what Jesus does. He explains that even though he is going to depart from them... He's going to continue to be with them. He's coming back. He's going to continue to be with them, but in a very new way, in a most unique way. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. And so he begins to uh, prepare them for this great, great event, which we call Pentecost, in which Jesus comes back to his church but not as a physical manifestation as a man walking with us. So how is he going to come back? How is he going to do it? Well, he's going to explain how he's coming back by using the agricultural analogy of a vineyard, of a vineyard. So what I want to do this morning is do a little background preparation because I, I think we need to just be reminded of what we have already known, what we already understand of the word, but it's always good to be refreshed. Amen? How many of you have had children or still have children, and they're ready for an exam? And what do you say? What, what, they're getting ready. They're going to have the exam tomorrow. What, what does the mama or the daddy say to them? Are you what? Are you ready? Well, yes, I'm ready. Bex, because the teacher taught us that three weeks ago. But do you, what, say it again? Do you remember it? Well, I, I think I do. Uh, I hope I do. I'm not quite sure if I do. So what would be your next comment? Well, then what? Go back and re-review. Are you with me? Isn't it, is this how we live? Is this how we relate to our children especially? review. 
Jesus is going to explain how he's going to come back and why it is better for him to go away by using this vineyard analogy. At the end of his discord in chapter 16, then, what does Jesus say? Arise and let us go on. So they get up from the table and they go outside of the upper room. <clears throat> they begin to walk through the city of Jerusalem and they come to the outer gate. They leave the city. They go across the brook Kedron. And as they do that, they're heading to the Mount of Olives. Remember that? To Gethsemane. Remember that? And as they pass, they're passing this grove of vines and branches and grapes. Here they are. Do you remember one of the ways which the temple was adorned? One of the adornments of the temple, Solomon's temple. Remember that? What? Grapes and vines, vineyard, the, the, the agricultural symbolism. And so why is this important? What is the Holy Spirit telling us here? So as he begins to, as they begin to travel out and they pass the vines, Jesus, already knowing what he's going to be doing, I can just see, here they are, the group of men walking together. Judas, remember, has already been put out. He's already left. What you must do, do, do quickly. Go ahead. And they're passing all these vines. And what does Jesus say? I am the true vine. You are the branches. And so immediately he takes a visible reality. And he speaks to them about the nature and the character of himself and who they are to him and who they are and who he will be with them and how he will be with them, rather. You see this cluster? That's an analogy. I'm the vine and you are the branches. So let me read it. We're going to read one through eight. I am the vine, the true, or the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch, now I, I don't know whether it's in your notes or not. Do you have, do you have certain words emboldened in your notes? Okay. I want you to notice this because here is what we're after. Every branch in, circle the word in. Every branch in me does not bear, that does not bear fruit. He, who, the fine dresser, the father takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in, circle the word in me, and I in you. Now there it is. That's the meaning of the vine and the branches right there as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine you are the branches I'm sorry so neither can you unless you abide in me I am the vine you are the branches he who abides what in me and I in him he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see how repetitive Jesus is? He keeps saying the same thing over and over again. We already heard you. Over and over, he repeats. If anyone does not abide 
in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. In this way is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So what is the emphasis in this particular set of verses? Is the emphasis on what we're doing? What is the emphasis? The emphasis is being in. The word in is what we call in the locative case, the location. The emphasis is about the location of our lives, the location of Jesus. Jesus, remember, has been what? With them. He's been with them. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is with the people of God. But now we've come to a new place. And everything is about to be fulfilled in the most dramatic way. It is going to be fulfilled in us. In us. So how is Jesus leaving and how is he coming back? He's coming back how? To be where? In us. So in these verses, Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and its branches to explain that God will fulfill his purpose in the most extraordinary way. This is unheard of. It's in the Tanakh, which we'll see. But it's extraordinary. No one has ever thought of this. No one has ever. This is this has not existed before. And so as we prepare I want to do a little background work. I want to go through some what we already know to review, remember, for the test, just to make sure. And let's remember all that. First of all, what is God's consuming passion? Why has he created the world? Everything that God does is about one thing. Steve, say it again. His glory. Now, if we don't get this, and we said it a lot of times, you're going to miss everything in the New Testament. You're going to miss it all. Everything that God does, everything that God has done, everything that God will do is for one single purpose. We talked about this a little bit in the new members class yesterday. And what is that purpose? His glory, that he may be glorified. But not that just he may be glorified because, let's face it, God is glorified whether we see it or not or like it or not or believe it or not. Why? Because God in himself is glorified. He is a glorious being. He is rather the glorious being. So it's not necessarily about making God more or less glorified. So when we say God is glorified, that's his purpose, the glory of God. Specifically, how does God display his glory in his people? So I would say this, the all-consuming passion of God, the reason we read these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then every single word after that is about one issue, one subject, 
one goal. The glory of God in his people. Amen? That's the glory of God. That's what he's after. So that when the universe sees us, what are they really seeing? The display and the manifestation of God's own intrinsic glory. Who he is in himself. How he is. There's so much more to talk about, but we don't have time. We've done that before. Now, that's the purpose of God. That means this. That everything about my life needs to be evaluated against, judged against God's glory. Is what I'm doing manifesting the glory of God? Or is it in the way of the manifestation of the glory of God? You know, I hear believers say this. Well, I'm free to do this. I'm free to do the other. You've heard that. Well, it's okay. We're we're free to do these things. Now, what is the problem with that? The problem is the pronoun. What pronoun did I use? I. You've already started wrong. You've already started and taken the wrong step. You've taken a step in the wrong direction. When you and I begin with I, we have already... We are walking in that which brought the universe down. I can do, you know, I feel this is okay. I feel that. I believe I can go there. I believe I can say that. I believe. Now, there is a place for that. But the place for that is only within the context of God's glory. Do we see that? So when we're talking about our freedom and what we should or shouldn't do, we're talking about disputable matters, you know, whether is this a gray area? Is this okay for Christians to do? The first thing to consider, is this a display? Is this the actual fruit of the glory of God? Is what I'm going to say, where I'm going, what I'm doing, et cetera, et cetera, the actual display of the very heart of God? Of God himself. And within that context. Within that context. As I live that way. Then yes. I can say I. Because my I. Is in moral correspondence. With God. Do we see that? So. Let's go back to the beginning. Jesus remember said. I'm the vine and you are the branches. It's an agricultural analogy. Therefore, you see, when we read in Genesis one twenty-eight, you thought you'd get away in a class without going back to Genesis. Listen to what the Lord tells Adam and Eve after he creates them. In verse 27, he created he them. Remember? Okay. What does the Lord say to them? God blessed them. And he said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, in those words, be fruitful. Maybe we've never connected it. In those words, be fruitful. What analogy do you see? The vine and the branches. You see other agricultural analogies. I understand that. And so when Jesus is saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. 
that's an analogy that has to do with God's original purpose command in Genesis. I have created you in my image, remember, in verse 26. And for my image to be displayed, because my image is my glory, the only way my image is displayed is that you be a living, fruit-bearing revelation of my image so that the fruit of my life, the fruit of your life, is the fruit of the image of God, is the fruit of the glory of God. That's what fruit-bearing is all about. There's one word that encapsulates it, which isn't the most popular word in the world, and it's that word, that nasty old word, obedience. Obedience. Obeying God is the fruit-producing activity of the glory of God in my life. That's what obedience is. It is the fruit-producing activity of God's glory in my life. Is obedience important? Yes. Why? Because we have been created for this particular purpose. But what happened? Well, as the fall shows us what? No one is capable. Not even Adam and Eve. You remember Adam and Eve weren't perfect. Only Jesus was the perfect man. Hmm? Adam and Eve were innocent. They had the propensity to fall. The only thing is, before the fall, they were still innocent of the fall. And so if anyone, and Adam and Eve, remember, represent all of us. None of us would have done it better. All of us would have done the very same thing as Adam and Eve. So if anyone, an innocent person, in an environment where there is no sin, nothing wrong in that environment. Everything is going my way. There's just one little catch. There's a tree over there that I'm supposed to not do something, and so it's the issue of obedience. And Adam and Eve, were they able to produce the divine fruit of the glory of God? Are we able to reduce to produce the divine fruit of God's glory? Are we? See, what happens is when we talk about fruit and obedience, we're thinking primarily of things and duties. Do we see that? Okay, you need to do one, two, three, four, five. Well, that is correct. But it is bigger than that. The divine fruit of our lives as intended by God in his creational purpose is that we should produce the divine fruit of his glory. That we should produce the very activity, thought patterns, etc. of the Lord Jesus himself. That's what our obedience is all about. That's what fruit bearing is all about. You know, if I say to you, you don't know me at all. And I say to you, I'm a Christian. I've seen this so many times. You and I are talking. I don't know you. Hi, my name is Peter Davidson. Your name is what? Patrick Fuller. Good to meet you. Where are you at? How are you? Uh, are you a Christian? Yes. yes. Oh, great. 
I'm so glad. Oh, oh, this is a brother in Christ. Why? How do I know that? Because he said what? I'm a Christian. I don't know nothing about this old bird. I don't know whether he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. I don't know that. Do you know it? Well, but Pat, he said he was a believer. He said he's a Christian. Therefore, Debbie, we, 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 should, we should, what? Trust that. No. What is the one basis upon which I can determine at least to a limited extent as a believer? What must I see here, etc., in this man to indicate that he may be a Christian? What? What he's doing, how he's doing it, the fruit of his life. God knows if he's a believer, but we don't know. How do I know that the glory of God is being manifested in this man? Only through his what? The fruit bearing, the actions, the words, the thoughts, where he goes, what he does. So if I see Patrick Fuller in a context that is pointing more to the flesh. If I see him in a context that is manifesting more of the activities of the flesh, think about what I'm saying. Is that indicative, at least to me, of the glory of God? No, because God is not in the business of producing the activities of the flesh. But through or in the flesh, he is producing the activities of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do realize that some activities in the flesh, you can't know one way or the other. But I think there are certain activities. There are a bunch of them maybe that are pretty indicative. I don't know whether that's God. Oh, you're judging now. Well, you know, we're called to make a righteous judgment, Jesus said. So the main issue is fruit-bearing. Well, let me get going here. So the only man who is able to produce the divine fruit is the man spoken of in Colossians 1.15. What does that say? Christ is the image. We are made in the image. Christ is the image. He is the literal fruit-bearing man upon the earth whose every aspect of his life bears the fruit of God's glory. Therefore, the incarnation. In the incarnation, the Son of God has become God's living vine, and we have been united to him as his branches. So Jesus refers to us as the branches. Why? To show that we have been brought into an indissoluble union with him and with the Father. The vine and the branches are, are primarily showing us a theological, making a theological statement, and that is this. The only way that our lives produce the fruit that manifests the glory of God is to be in this indissoluble relational union with the vine. So, there's a tree in your yard. And one of the branches falls off, or you cut it off, and there it is on the ground. How long will that tree continue 
to manifest green leaves. Can it manifest green leaves for very long apart from the tree? Well, of course not. The only way that branch is any good to the tree is that it is connected to the tree so that the life of the tree flows from the tree into the branches so that it partakes of the very same life that the tree has. In our union with the vine, we are those whose fruit glorifies God so that the earth will be filled with a knowledge of the uh, with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters covered the earth. And remember, that's Habakkuk 2.14. That is what the Lord says in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and do what? Multiply and do what? Fill the earth. So that's God's purpose. Now, when Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches, we've said this before. Where must that analogy be first presented when Jesus says something about himself, when he talked about the Father's purpose, where must all that be first presented? Where must we see something of the person and work of Christ? Where? The Old Testament. The Old Testament must be the backdrop or the seed because everything of the New Testament is the blossoming of that which has been presented as seed form in the old. The old is the seed, or if you would, the root. And the New Testament is the fruit. So you have to have the revelation begun in the root. So we need to look there. So let's look at that. Look at this verse in Isaiah 5, 7. He says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Now, why is he saying that? Because again, it has to do with what God has designed for us in Genesis 2.28. Be what? Fruitful. And can we be fruitful if we are disassociated from the fruit-producing vine? The only way to be fruitful is to be connected into that vine. Now here's what he says in Isaiah 5. He describes this vine in verses 1 and 2. Let me sing now of my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Now he's talking about Israel as the Old Testament analogy of this vine-branch relationship. He dug it all around. This is what the Lord did. Removed the stones. This is a history of God's work in Israel. And planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And also hewed, hewed out a vine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. So that's what God has done. You see, God created Adam and Eve to be this branch of the vine. And as Adam and Eve would have children, their children would continue to be the, the progeny, the continuation of the growth of this vine so that the entire earth would be filled with the fruit of God's presence. But Adam and Eve failed. So the Lord raised up a nation who would be as Adam and Eve were to be. They are to be the living vine upon the earth 
the living branches upon the earth that take its fruit and its life from the vine, thus displaying what you see in this nation, what you hear in this nation, how this nation is living and what it's doing and how it's growing and how it can be so abundant and blessed. It is a result, not so much of the nation itself, or not at all because of the nation itself, but because of its connection irrevocably into the vine. But you do remember, Israel also failed. And so here's what we read in Jeremiah 2.21. I had planted you, talking to the nation of Israel, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? So you see, Israel, like Adam and Eve, disobeyed the Lord, and he turned their fruit of righteousness into bitterness so that they were no longer able to be the manifestation of God's image. So next week, what we want to do is this. Israel has failed. Now, now that Israel has failed, what about the purpose of God? Has it failed? It looked like it failed, but had it? No, because you see, there are also statements in the word, prophecies, promises in the word, that God is not going to allow his purpose to fail. So in Psalm 80, we'll see some of these that specifically will, if you would, prefigure the very person and work of Jesus, the Messiah, who will come as God's true vine. All these others had failed. Jesus will be the one true vine, the one that won't fail. He's going to be the true one. And so we'll begin next week, look rather next week, into continuing what this is all about. Thank you.